you know, everybody wants to be a special forces guy until they have to do what they do or train like they do. And, 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 you know, it's, I look at those guys and some of them are my friends currently. And it, some people are just born for it, man. I mean, I, I, I was an intelligence guy. I worked with them, but I, I don't know if I could do as efficiently as they are, as some people are who are just like able to, focus on the mission and live that. And, and that's what probably haunt me the most when I got out. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Four years ago, I bought a new truck for the first time ever, and I was so excited. It was incredible. It smelled good. It felt good. I wasn't constantly afraid of breaking down. You know, it was awesome. But after I drove it for a couple weeks, I do the same thing that I always do, and the backseat started just, it started to fill up with stuff. You know, I'm guiding elk hunters and deer hunters, and I'm duck hunting and I'm fly fishing, and all that gear just accumulates. And pretty soon, I wasn't able to take people with me anymore. And I was embarrassed, you know, people would ask for a ride and like, nah, sorry, man, I've, I've got too much stuff with me, but I couldn't put it in the bed because then it gets damaged by weather. So I go to the internet and I'm looking for options and I ended up buying a deck to drawer system. Now this was a, a big purchase for me, but it, it's something that I felt like I needed and, and it looked like it was going to be a good product. And it really was. Dect came out with a new drawer system this year, and they've made some meaningful improvements over the previous one. You have almost no wasted space in your truck bed now, so you can access the sides of the drawers, and then the drawers roll a full 18 inches farther out, so you can actually access the back of the drawer, even if you don't have a lot of arm reach. There's some really strong tie-down points on top that have a 400-pound load rating. So if you're going to haul something like a motorcycle or big coolers or whatever, you can really strap your gear down and make it secure. You can lock these drawer systems, so you can lock the drawers. Or if your tailgate locks, then uh, nobody can access the drawers anyways. So I actually feel like my stuff is more secure inside this drawer system than in the cab of my truck. That's a big deal to me. The complete deck system is made in America by Americans. And you know that that's something that, that I love and appreciate. They've got one that will fit in any truck or van that's been made in America in the last 20 years plus. You can go to decked.com slash six ranch and get free shipping. But just being honest with you, they get free shipping to everybody. I also, while you're there, want you to check out their deco line. So they've got a bunch of different boxes and storage containers that either fit on top of or inside of the drawer system. And those are built really robust. I saw the prototypes at an event this summer. I'm impressed. I'm excited to get my hands on them. I haven't yet. But the, the prototypes were, were super badass. And the ones that, uh, that are in production model... They're available now over at decked.com. So even if you just need a place for some tools or you need a new bow case or, you know, something along those lines, go check that out. And if you're driving around right now and your backseat is just full of gear and you can't haul people around, 
maybe you should consider uh, looking at the, the full deck drawer system because it's a good piece of gear. It was a good purchase for me and, and I hope it helps you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Today, I've got a very special guest, and we're recording this remotely, which I don't typically do, but you're going to understand really quickly why that is. And I think that you're really going to enjoy this conversation because my guest today is one of the most incredible people that I've ever had the privilege of talking to. Also, in the middle of the show, you're going to be hearing from Christy Marshall. Christy's 15 years old, and she did a wildlife biology piece that she's going to be doing as a guest in the middle of the show. So hang out for that. Without further ado, welcome to the show, Mr. Luke Kennedy. Such an honor to have you here. Thank you. I mean, I, I don't think, I really didn't think I was worthy of your time, but, you know, thank you so much. It's very humbling to be your guest, and it's it's privilege privilege is all mine truly thank you uh dude you've got you've got an incredible story and the more i think about it the more i feel like you are multiple people in the same life and and what a privilege that that really is because regardless of what anybody believes what we know for sure is that we at least get this one life and you've got to spread yours in so many different directions with with just platitudes of 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 i don't know just lots of layers like um you you've got incredible depth in in your experiences and what you've been able to contribute not only to our own country but to others as well can't wait to get into it where i would like to start though is with water polo like because that is that's a crazy sport that's the sport that a lot of people they only interact with about every four years they see it on the olympics and they go wow that's kind of crazy i wonder how this ever came to be uh but uh i'm curious it's the first team sport at the olympics it was it was the first team sport at the olympics yeah that's that's amazing so how old is water polo where did this get its start it, it's it's a it, it's kind of a, a funny story because Technically, the Brits invented it because they're sailors, right? And um, uh, it's been played with uh, pig intestines and then sheepskin balls and then the soccer ball. But then it got spread out with all the sailors around the world that worked for the, you know, um, the the great India and all these companies that, you know, all the sailors around the world. So it's kind of like a, uh, it's got spread by the naval uh silk express if you will okay and uh mostly for whatever reason man i mean the the country that has that's been a the strongest in water polo is the country that has no shores whatsoever hungary owns water polo really I mean, they're everything i mean you can go to hungary and water polo will be on tv yeah and their players will be gods yeah. Yet, you know, their pools and everything is very little. So all those Eastern European countries, Mediterranean countries, the most um, Yugoslavia, ex-Yugoslavia, and every faction of that part just became huge. And um, Greeks, but, you know, all the Mediterranean countries are very, very uh, involved in it. We've talked about this before, but, you know, the stresses that a human endures when they can't breathe are unlike just about any other. So we can go for a long time without sleep, but that's a, a great way to stress people out is to 
um, keep keep them from sleeping. We can go quite a while quite a while without eating, but that's another way to cause stress. We can go several days without drinking any water, but without breathing, that clock runs down really quickly. And then if yeah. you add stress on top of that time, like if you're just laying in a pool and your face is in the water, you know, most people can can get north of three minutes with a little bit of training relatively relatively quickly like in in the first few days of practice they could probably get there but if you start stressing them out while they can't breathe that's going to get down to that 20 second 30 second time frame really quickly so yeah. i think being able to control your body uh while you can't breathe and while you're exerting yourself gives you a control over who you are that almost nothing else can do I mean, absolutely. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think, um, you know, most of the, you know, I mean, I, I promised myself I wouldn't give them that much credit, but there, here we are. You know, seals, the way that, you know, some of their evolutions are, is truly humbling to see that, you know, they teach themselves and, you know, they have the, uh, the, the drawn proofing where they're completely tied down. And it, it's just that element of mind over body completely and when you stress your water it it, it it becomes you know it becomes survival much faster than just any pain that you hand you know you have when you run or i don't know if you do push-ups you know the lactic acid is much different pain than um being without oxygen yeah yeah and and really exerting yourself hard like that's that's crazy but you played it at a really high level. So tell me a little bit about your water polo career, that which you can. Sure, of course. Um, I played, uh, I started very young. Um, the partial Greek parts of my family, uh, it's a national sport from that part where my mom is from. And um, it's just, it's been something that you played. There, there's nothing else. There's no soccer field. There's no basketball field. I, uh, it's funny and it's really timing. Uh, there was a gentleman that plays for Kansas City whose father, and I forget his name, and I should as a fellow Greek, and I, it's, but he's in the um, Super Bowl. And he played water polo all the way till he moved to United States, and now he's a Super Bowl. And he gives a lot of intel of how you can catch the ball. It's always one hand. And you know, it's funny to me when people say how you, you, know, you have to be super coordinated to play, I don't know, basketball you you try having a dude yanking on you and get that ball <laughs> <laughs> that's coordination man uh tell me a little bit about your your water water polo career that's what yes. we're talking right. about sure. so you, you started at a super young age yeah i started at a very young age i i, I think um well i was a swimmer uh I, I started swimming and um with my little anger management issues as a little kid as a, as a young boy i did not compute that people who are swimming with you in the same lane that their waves are normal so i always thought they were making waves to offset my swimming so i started jumping on them and the coach realized i think water polo is for you my friend so as he pulled me back and put me in a water polo practice i got punched in the face that first practice and i said this is it this is where i belong so that's how I started. Uh, I played high school all throughout, um, state finals, um, state championship, Division One um, NCAA finals, third place. Uh, and then after that, I got up to the uh, 
Olympic trials, Olympic squad, European championships, two of them, one in Greece and one in, um, in Italy. And uh, got injured, came back home, <laughs> lived the dream as a investment banker for a little bit. And uh, after that, joined the Chicago Police Department, transferred to California Highway Patrol. This is kind of executive summary at this point. And then from there, I uh, got uh, recruited by the Bureau and the rest is, I guess, history. Now, you've operated in war zones all over the world. How does the war zone of, say, Iraq compare to that of Chicago? Man. Is that even a fair question to ask? You know, I, I never know what to trust when I what I see on the news, but, you know, what I see looks bad. You know, I see a holiday weekend where there's like 30 or 40 or 50 people who get shot and go through the emergency rooms in Chicago. Like that, that would be an incredible day of fighting in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, something that I frankly never saw were, were that many people getting getting shot in a day. So it, it seems like a lot. But you were in it as, as Chicago PD. So what was that like? Well, prior to that, I'll just give you a little fact that's almost scary, but it's just the fact of life of living in Chicago. In your time, during your time of uh, Afghanistan, every single medic, no matter what branch, no matter what um, rank, has been prepared and trained in Chicago's Sinai Hospital because the, the there was never shortage, ever shortage of any caliber possible they can get um, bullet wounds. So 22s, 9s, 5.56s, everything in between. The, I mean, they, they love the Dracos, but it's just that they, every single military deployed medical personnel has been trained in Chicago Sinai because there was never shortage of shot of gunshot wounds. And uh, as a Chicago police officer, you know, I've been shot. I've been in more gunfights in Chicago than I've been in Afghanistan. And that's a fact. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, I mean, I, you know, I kind of wear it with, with, with kind of badge of honor. But uh, on my third day, day in Chicago, I was in a in a in a lethal gunfight uh, that I did not have to do in Afghanistan. I mean, I don't. And even the the gunfights later on that I I've been in have never been in such a close proximity and never. I mean, we were almost ambushed as a Chicago uniform police officers, and that's a daily thing. I mean, it's and, you know one thing that doesn't really happen in Afghanistan all the time is. Um, we were not, I, I guess, base and, and forward observation bases were, you know, bombed and, and murdered and, and martyred. But uh, Chicago, I mean, you are a cop, you're a target all the time. I mean, you are a target just like everybody else. And and then, and, and, you know, it, it's it's difficult to be in a place such as Afghanistan where you're going to you know, secure the rights and you're going to win, you know, hearts and minds and you come home and it's worse. Mm. And and that's something that I struggled with when I was leaving and I went, when I would come back. It's just, it's, it's just, uh, it, it's a different 
understanding of what freedom is and how people don't value it back home as much. And it's kind of almost like a, it's not a treasure thing anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I even saw something recently where there was a gunfight in Chicago and nobody was charged because they just declared it as mutual combat, whatever that yes, is. Uh, man, that's wild times. That's wild. That's wild West stuff, but it's right now. So, yeah. And, so, and, and also a fact, I mean, I was a federal agent, so I kind of understand how this goes. Um, Chicago will report death and or woundings if the accident happened in Chicago and ended in Chicago. So if they got in a fight in Chicago and they went to a hospital nearby suburb, no data. If they fought in suburbs, which is not that difficult in Chicago area, and you come to Chicago hospital, no data. Wow. No police report doesn't matter. So it's just, you can, I mean, you, you can be your own, you know, um, uh, you can make your own <clears throat> speculations of how much that is. So bottom line, it's not going well in Chicago. Uh, then that moves you to, I'm glad you won your gunfight, by the way. I would like to congratulate you on that. Uh, Thank you. And then, uh, then you move on to California. Yes, and sir. uh that was California Highway? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, but they realized really quickly because of your, your acumen with language that you were going to be undervalued there. How many languages do you speak? Well, to just to give you a little caveat, um, everybody, well, most personnel in, in on California Highway Patrol is bilingual or at least understands it a little bit. So in order to get paid for anything more at my time, during my time, you had to be certified as a federal um, translator, or you could be asset to a translator to any of the agencies or task forces. So I went to sign up to be certified for Turkish, um, at the time, Turkish, Russian, Greek, and um, Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian, all those. And... During that process, they uh, kind of said, well, would you like to be a FBI agent, man? I mean, they, they, you know, we can kind of transfer you around. And it was a, it kind of was an offer that I could not um, refuse at the time. I wasn't going to wake up with any, you know, horses in my bed, but I was just, the, the offer they made was very lucrative at the time. And this is 2009, 10. You have to also kind of get into my space. I, uh, prior to that, I was an investment banker in Chicago and I didn't see a future. I mean, to, if you remember 2008, 9, 10, economy was in such a place that you you really had to kind of think really, really, really in advance of what you're gonna do, what you're gonna buy, where can you live? So knowing what federal agency could provide, I went that route. Yeah, I, I graduated in college in 2009, and I was already going into the Marines. I had a plan. I had a job. But for a lot of the kids in my class, man, they were hosed. Uh, it did not yeah. look good for them at all. Like they're, The job market was just nothing, and especially in something like investment banking with you know, the oh, way people were viewing hedge funds and everything else at the time, like that, that seems like a, a dead-end street. So you get picked up by the FBI. Um, and by the way, these language tests, folks, are incredibly difficult. Um, I'm fluent in Norwegian because I lived in Norway for a year. 
I say fluent, but when I went to take this test that you're talking about for the Marines so that I can make a little bit of extra money, when I got to that fourth level, what I had to do was listen to uh, radio conversations. So I couldn't see people's lips moving. I had to listen to radio conversations and they were like talk shows where they were talking about recent politics. And I hadn't lived there for a decade at this time. And I failed that uh, completely. So I only made it to level three where I could conversationally just crush it. I could go anywhere in Norway and understand everything and make myself understood. No big deal. And I felt like I was fluent, but when it got to that stage, yeah. buddy, it, it's really hard. So if you make it to that level four, that means that you are like a natural language speaker where you may not even have an accent in that country and, and can just completely blend in. Yeah. I, I got, all my uh, just I I am I understand a lot by DOD standards and by DOJ standards, so I I could hold a conversation and, and or listen eavesdrop on at nine on nine, but six is where I got um, four, so I'm ranked four as a native speaker in, in in six of them, which includes writing and reading. Wow, good job! Uh, that's incredible. Okay, so currently we have. Uh, somebody who is one of the best water polo players in the world who becomes an investment banker who gets in a shootout in Chicago, wins the shootout, and then goes to California and then gets picked up by the FBI, DOD, DOJ, which now moves you to the meat of what we want to talk about, which is ending up with you um, acting as a deep undercover uh officer is that the correct word sure i mean you know there's there's certain uh and i, I actually i really want to clarify this yeah um, fbi has agents and uh analysts are nothing and or officers are nothing and cia has officers who are and analysts who are everything and agents are nothing gotcha so it's kind of you know, people always say, well, are you an agent or a CIA or a spy or a secret agent? Well, <clears throat> you know, it, 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 and, you know, there's a lot of other members of our of my community, of our community who come out and give out, you know, certain spiels and stories. It's just you are there is no one on this planet who really is a, a deep undercover who can tell you, oh, I'm a spy or I'm, I'm, I'm working undercover. I can tell you why. Right. Once you go undercover. You assume that legend and that's it, man. I mean, you don't even know what you, you, you know, you become whoever the fuck they tell you that you are at that time. So if you become a Mickey Mouse, you're a Mickey Mouse. You're not a secret Mickey Mouse. You're not, you know, you don't identify as Mickey Mouse. You are the Mickey Mouse and the other one is the fake one. I mean, that's how you have to operate. So with that being said, um, I was, and also to the second caveats, just so people can kind of understand Every crime that begins and or results in within the U.S. territory is under federal Bureau of Investigations jurisdiction. So if it begins, if it's planned in Chicago, but it happened in Spain, FBI will be on it to make sure what that bridge was, who funded it here, all that stuff. But it becomes an FBI thing. If it began in Spain, in Barcelona, and that dude or ladies or whomever flies to Chicago and does it, it's still an FBI jurisdiction to go to Spain and do whatever they have to do to put it together. So it's either it begins 
or ends or both. If it's none of those, then the agency, the CIA has more, I don't want to say jurisdiction because they don't technically, but they have more leeway of having more access to funds and or assets necessary to investigate, hence its intelligence agency at that point. So with that being said, my job at that time was, or the way that I got in, one, I spoke Russian and I wrote, I was able to speak, read and write Russian, which funny enough, prior to us being in Afghanistan, it was Russians. So they had this, all this maps or, you know, old, dated, but factual maps that they fought on. And at that time, if you remember, we were in good terms with Russia. I mean, we weren't on the bad terms. So I, I would meet up with the most old school, you know, your Ivan Drago dad KGB agents and review their maps and then, you know, make that package available to our intelligence and then we will triangulate what we had from before, what they had before, what has it evolved, has it moved, are Russian trying to mess with us, are we not having as detailed as they did or is it perfect? And funny enough, I mean, Russia got me too, um, Afghanistan. Yeah. But that, when I was in Iraq, I was put in to um, operate within refugee camps. Uh, there were, there were, there were, there were people, you know, it, it's also a thing that's happening in Gaza now, but a lot of people, a lot of Americans, everybody, I mean, my family included, I, I you know, nobody's really, doing it on purpose, but people are really oblivious of how many refugees and how those refugees work and how many they are per little cities. I mean, you know, if you live in a city of 100,000 and you have a football field and you go to a football game, those bathrooms are trashed by the end of that day. Now imagine those people that have to live in that football field, living there for two, three years. Yeah, I mean, you've seen the lines for the food. I mean, it's it, it, that's just super easy to kind of put into perspective. You just go to any game, basketball, food, it doesn't matter. You know, they, they don't get much space. You know, you, they got as much as a blanket. And there's food lines. There's all the personal vendetta they have in between. So, you know, even though they're refugees now, the beef sort of say they had from prior still exists. So they kind of, there's this oldest criminal aspect in this, now eco-chambered and, and kind of combusted places so they cannot leave for their security reasons or water security reasons. And so what happens is there's a lot of vulnerable youth. Uh, there is a lot of anger. Uh, there is a lot of anger um, of anybody, men, women, everybody who either is really hating the position they're in or they're really trying to understand why they got in there, how they can resolve it. So it's a, it's a best place to radicalize anybody for good or bad. So my job was to operate in Iraq uh, within the refugee camps to operate English schools um, as a plate by UN. Um, they were kind of to give these refugees who have no place to go back. So there's immigrants and there's refugees, people who become refugees really don't have a place to go back anymore or for a longer time. So by Geneva Convention, you need to kind of 
it's like an arrest. Like when you arrest somebody, you are responsible for them. Right. So when you when you have a refugee, you are responsible for them for all of their you know, there's a big difference between immigrants and refugees that people should kind of look into. I don't want to get too much into here. But to make them better citizens of future and to make their uh, assimilation easier, every camp has a school, English, French, German, Norwegian. Um, and I ran English schools, uh, 14 of them at, by the end of my career, where I my job was to identify who was vulnerable, who I thought was vulnerable for two aspects. One, for us, if they were kind of hating their government and they were more favorable to what we can do, so those people would be able to explain the situation to me better, culturally, of what's happening amongst them. Not really to work for us, but it's just to give me intel that I can package it and send it you know, forward. And then also people who are really angry and blaming the Americans then who are vulnerable to the groups that will use that against us. So right. that's one. And then identify who were the groups and individuals who come to do such things or who, who are the recruiters, sort of say. And then, you know, make that package available to interested parties. And to an extent, that's what we do here. So if if somebody was to get a top secret security clearance um, who was working for DOD, DOJ, whatever, um, NCIS would send investigators uh, back to their community to talk to everybody who'd been involved in their lives. So like when I got my uh, security clearance, they talked to my teachers, they talked to coaches, they talked to everybody. They look really closely at your girlfriends, man. That was the worst. Yeah, uh, they they look really closely at your financial records. And the reason that they do that, they want to see if you have a bunch of debt. And it's not like, oh, this person is you know financially irresponsible, so we can't trust them with, with secrets. It's, oh, do you owe $60,000 on a credit card? If somebody comes in and says, hey, I'll take care of that for you if you just provide me this piece of information – well, then that person is vulnerable, right? And and that's exactly what you're looking at there, just in with different triggers, with, just with different triggers than what we would look at here. So you don't want to have a way that somebody can get a lever underneath of you. And if you do, then, you know, we're going to probably not give you that security clearance until that's taken care of. Sure. Or not at all, because it's, it's, it's too deep. Right, right. Um, but, you know, just to provide a little bit of continuity for for the way things actually get get thrown around, because the stuff that we're yeah. talking about with with like, you know, with special warfare, with with DOD, DOJ, FBI, CIA, most of what people actually interact with that is just garbage that comes across in in movies that is incredibly inaccurate and the same yeah. thing with security clearances so we're just trying to bring that back down to ground level to talk about what it actually looks like sure um, absolutely and and that's that's 100 exactly the same across every agency there is it's 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 you know they, they interview you for for a reason and it, it then they do a background check one to see if you are who you say you are and two to see if there's anything that you either omit it and or missed to your advantage or disadvantage. It's really, you never kind of know why they ask questions they do. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, tell me, tell me about uh, the the Taliban financier. This is a heartbreaking story. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, you know, I I I want to paint a picture for everybody as a veteran, as somebody who's been through it and who's signed up truly with intentions of Captain America. So I didn't go in with any romantic illusions of, you know, maybe they're good or maybe they're bad or they're all bad. I mean, I went in to make sure that nothing comes back to United States. I mean, my job, I took it extremely seriously for seven years was I was devoted to eliminate anyone who was trying to come to United States and do anything wrong. I, it didn't matter to me. I mean, I, I went in with, you know, that, that, that like a uh, mission. It's just like 9-11, never again over my dad body. And I'm going to stop it no matter where, no matter how. So during working at the camps, uh, I was, it, this was in Afghanistan. So this is not the first four years. This is the last of the three years that I lived there. Uh, we had a, I had a student who came, who comes from a um, from the mountains and um, <clears throat> comes to the uh, to uh, I'm sorry that's not that he he came to the school I I had an access kind of because it's kind of like a jurisdiction like I could go and ask the in the indigenous people to do you need help would you like to learn you know how to I mean, blow glass, all these things that we want to kind of bring that to them, enrich their lives, and also, you know, weighing in minds and hearts. That was the only thing that we had to do at the time. And um, I was tasked to scout a person. He was um, a shepherd, uh, a herd, and he had a lot of sheeps. He had uh, four kids. He had a brother, uh, and he lived on the top of a mountain. And in the middle of this mountain um, was a clan or, or a sect that was not aligned with his people. And his people were all like, like high, they're like Highlanders. They're all other tops, they're just his families. But this specific crowd right here just did not like him for their own territory wars. Like, cause he would bring the, his sheep down and they wouldn't like it. And it, it's, I guess petty, but that's just politics of their everyday life. And then the the town where everything was happening, meaning the the sales and and, and you know the the bazaar, was below this specific um, crowd. And there was only one road to go up and down. And my job was to make sure how many sheep he has, how many. Um, visitors he has who is it who are his visitors and or if i could recruit his kids to come to our school which will then at that time show because afghanistan is a conservative place it's just it's it, you know if they will allow their kids to go anywhere you will understand that they're conservative but less they're you know they're all conservative there's no liberal afghan but th this is just a less of a uh i guess more open-minded and I went and I approached them and I said, you know, we have a school. I would love for your kids to come. There was, you know, if there's any lessons that you don't want them to be in, that's free of choice. If you don't want your um your your 
or your brother's daughters to to like walk with men. That's not a problem. It's it's divided, it's segregated that way. And to my surprise, he was extremely willing. He said no problem. So for uh, I, I watched him for sixty seven days, and every Friday he would sacrifice a sheep and come send it with his brother to the camp and feed. I mean, whatever meat will suffice, we will feed everybody. And he will leave, you know, the post. And I mean, it was just this regular man. I mean, no, no different than my father. If I went to a school and he was a butcher sending me to feed us in time of war, like nothing. Prayed five times a week. I mean, five times a day. The reason why I had to count his sheep is it's it, it, that's his kind of bank account so the sheep account never went anywhere else up or down like so that means that he wasn't doing any illicit business or paying anything that wasn't being sold where it was so the only problem that there was and it was in my package that the logistics guy that goes between his top of a mountain and now to bazaar also was known to carry taliban stuff he wasn't taliban himself but he was Taliban friendly enough that they will hire him to transport their stuff. So in a way, he was kind of a fanboy who kind of greased around to do a lot more business because nobody could mess with him because he was Taliban, but he wasn't. So that's the only way that the sheep from the top of a mountain will go down from this praying dude that in 67 days I couldn't notice anything wrong who on fridays will send food to feed complete strangers had i mean afghans all have weapons on, on site so but nothing crazy that i could you know i would be suspicious and you know at that time i'm, I'm already i'm already veteran enough to kind of um realize what's going on if i mean set up or not and just one of those days the direct action people showed up and they were just like hey man um we need you to identify someone to bazaar with us and i'll uh, be you know it's just uh it's us so no problem i mean once direct action shows up you know, it's it's you know that's why I'm, i mean that's truly what i'm there for I'm, i am an ex extension of their existence and i am their limb so just kind of go in and for for those who don't know what is direct action uh direct action is um, at that time, killer capture, um, you know, the special forces guys, SEALs, sometimes Deltas. I mean, it, 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 it's just they are they come from direct um, orders from either Pentagon or, or CIA or whoever with a mission to be finished then and there. They, 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 they're not really um, in there to um, manipulate anything. They, 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 they had the intel. They 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 practice for so long they they go through everything and when they show up they're gonna execute there is there is no mission fail with those guys so when they show up it's just like whatever they're there for is gonna happen rather whether you want it or they want it or it, it, it's happening i mean it's there's no stopping that at that point right so when they showed up i i, I you know he wasn't my only uh target so i was just gonna like Let's see who this is, and this might be fun. And when they showed, when we got in and uh, they showed, I mean, on the scope, I saw the guy, I said, what is this for? 
And they said, well, man, now he's, uh, I mean, and at this point, you know, this is the guy, you know, you do you. And I was like, but uh, this doesn't make any sense. This makes no sense. Like, none. I mean, if you guys need to talk to this guy who needs something, I, I, I have, I mean, I can walk there right now and speak with him. And they just plain said, he is a Taliban financier. And I couldn't, it's not, it's just not possible. And and I, I know for a fact I'm the only one, or I thought I was the only one. But then I realized this guy is indirectly financing Taliban by employing a logistics guy. So it's no different than us, you and I, hiring a trucker from West Virginia to like send something from Virginia to you. And that guy being a, you know, clan member. And all of a sudden, you, me or you being accused of being a clan member. Right. Or, or even worse, financiers. And at that moment, he didn't make it back. Um, but I, um, I'm a father today, man, and, and it's 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 so difficult for me. You know, it's just like I do nothing wrong. You know, I I have a business, I do charity, I I I have you know friends, families, and this dude prayed five times a day, man. I mean, he lived within the structured environment that he was born, raised, and lived. He believed in his God. Our God, one God. It doesn't matter. This is not his or my God. It's just like he was a devoted believer, a businessman, a local man, a giving man, and gone just like that. Right. And it is. And I carry the guilt of, did I, you know, it's a man. I always think maybe I put wrong explanation or maybe I didn't explain enough or maybe, you know, it's difficult to live with this that, in a way, I I, I had his life, man. I mean, it's just like, it, it's just like, you know, my nickname amongst direct action people was, um, and I don't really like it, but was uh, Angel of Death because it's just like, you live with this, authority over people's life that's that's man-made man i mean it's just like you know i i identify or don't identify through a scope someone who either lives or doesn't live i didn't even know i mean when i said that's him it could have been they were going to spare his life so like it, it's not every time that direct action shows that they take somebody out sometimes you identify him and they start following him because they know that, that he's gonna meet somebody else who they need so it's just like it, it's not really you know, they show up and you point that guy and he's dead, but it's just being on that scope and like watching a man that I just watched for 67 days and, and, and pure, <laughs> pure man. Like, did he die for nothing? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I like to believe that I wasn't the only one watching him and that they had different intel. And, but I, I live with the guilt that what if my package led somebody to misunderstand what I wrote 
and take that guy out just because I didn't do a good enough job of explaining what that was and what that wasn't. And um, it, it was heavy. It's a it's a tough thing to be the one to decide who dies, right? And you know, I had I had my my fair share of that as well. And you and I have talked about this before, but I I firmly believe that it's easier to pull the trigger or issue the fire command to to kill somebody than it is to to give the order for somebody else to do it, right? And in this scenario, you weren't giving somebody the order. You were just playing your role and you were asked, hey, I just need you to identify to make sure that this is the correct person. And it's not only likely, it's for sure that there was other intelligence on that individual that you did not possess. So somebody knew something that you didn't know. And, you know, you were, you were a piece of that puzzle. And it's a terrible thing to be a piece of a puzzle where it doesn't make sense to you. And, you know, I was definitely in, in scenarios as well where it's like, I don't think that's right. Like, I don't think that that guy needs, needs to get shot right now. Uh, but that's not up to me. Right. That's that's not my role. And it wasn't your role either. It doesn't change how you carry that guilt or how you carry that burden. But, you know, the reality is you're not guilty of anything. It just doesn't feel good. It just doesn't feel good. Yeah. But I'm sure there was also times where you had a package on somebody who was the worst of the worst. And you got to point them out and be like that guy right there. And he has earned it. He's earned it twice, you know. Yeah, and 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 you know, I I, I at at one point of time during my career and during those experiences, you know, you almost kind of want to have if you know when you had that bad bad feeling, you want to have a good one to kind of offset it, and in with that euphoria at the time, it feels good because you kind of you can forget what this is, but just like when you play. You know, any, I mean, you wrestle, anybody who's competitive will tell you they they will remember all of their mistakes they made in a game they won. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, 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 and coming back, you know, I mean, every time I, you know, I live in, in Virginia and those, those mountaintops are not that much different at times. And I just keep thinking, I mean, it, it's really, you know, I'm a, I allow myself to not live with the guilt, but have it. But it, it also is something that I strive to tell everybody that it's just, it's, 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 uh, it's not that easy. You know, everybody wants to be a special forces guy until they have to do what they do or train like they do. And, 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 and you know, it's, I look at those guys and some of them are my friends currently. And it, some people are just born for it, man. I mean, I, I, I was an intelligence guy. I worked with them, but I, I don't know if I could do as efficiently as they are, as some people are who are just like able to focus on the mission and live that. And, and that's what probably haunt me the most when I got out. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wanted to be a SEAL at one time, and when I took the test, they, they realized immediately that my test scores were way too high, so they sent me to the Marines instead. 
I understand. <laughs> I understand, man. I knew the moment I saw you, I'm like, yep, yeah, no way this guy could I mean seals were just like, yeah, no. Plus no. you don't have a book, so I don't know yeah. if you, you know you you were that's same that- that's an obvious joke. I never wanted to be a seal. I love uh, I love some of my seal brothers. Others, I think, need to pipe down a little bit. Um, they are incredible humans, but I will never stop making fun of them. Very true. And and you know, we've talked about this before. There are certain conditions and certain scenarios where there is nobody else you would call. I mean, yep. there are certain places what they do is it's they are the best of the best undeniable yeah you know if somebody needs i'm I'm gonna flip it man i mean in afghanistan or even today right here if i needed to call anyone like if i needed someone i would rely on on green berets a lot more than seals and and it's not because seals are better looking it's just it's it's the way that the whole unit works with green berets, I, 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 I'm forever impressed with everything they do when they're fully on. It's just whichever way you turn that, that team around, it's able to go forward without any compromises. I feel the same exact way. And if I was jammed up someplace in the world, pick a random country and I got one phone call, my phone call is probably going to be to a green beret and they're, they're, their skills are a lot more broad. You know, if you need somebody to swim somewhere sketchy and then blow something up once they get there, the seal is the perfect tool for that job, right? If you need a group of guys to show up and break everything and kill everybody, call the Marines, right? That they're going to do that really, really well. And then they're going to leave. Um, if, if you need some type of really specialized mission done, there's somebody within the green berets within one of those groups that is going to be better at that than anyone else in the world. And, and their teamwork's phenomenal. They're incredibly humble. Uh, you probably know a green beret in your life. Who's never said anything about it. And that's also incredibly uncommon amongst these special forces folks. Uh, so lo- lots of admiration to all of them. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is me giving a nod to the berets. I've got a, a knife right here that uh that uh a beret made for me and uh i have it in front of me on every single show that i record and i just admire it and i think about who he was as a person um and it, it's something that's very special to me and uh yeah you'll also find that uh the green berets almost always have uh have a relationship with sharp objects which which they i do. appreciate yeah they do uh, and I, I want to give a little example. I, I was in one of those schools um, and taught, you know, it was just a remote area and, and, you know, internet exists, but it really doesn't exist. And there are certain things that you claim, you know, so you really cannot look it up. And I needed to know um, a bit more about uh, a Persian poet, Rumi. And as direct force was coming, direct action was coming through, they kind of asked me like, hey man, you know, do you need anything that needs to be sent this way? Cause you, there's really, there's no DoorDash for, for undercover agents in Afghanistan. So I said, yeah, man, I do. I actually really do. I need some books, some, some literature on this roomy dude. He's a poet. And it just like, I mean, out of nowhere, this blue eyed blonde kids that show up. Like, what do you want to know? 
And I'm like, you know, get the fuck out of here, man. I mean, like, I, I need to know a lot. Like, because they joke. I mean, you know, this is downtime. It's like, no, man, I, I, this was on my, you know, this was for my workup. I, I, what do you want to know? So I'm, like, I'm looking at this guy, but like, the, I, you know, I'm also waiting. Thank you. Know, I'm waiting for them like, just to walk out and like, walk right. away. So like, I'm yeah. not really engaging him to much, as much as I should. So I just said, well, you know, I like this guy, Rumi. And the dude, man, I mean, he just like from memory started. Well, is it this? Is it this? Is it is it this? You know, some people put it on this angle, and, and I was just like, dude, you look like you're from Minnesota. How the fuck do you know Ruby? I mean, like, how much was you working? Like, what what did you? And apparently, that's what he did, man. I mean, he was there for the cultural reasons, and he, you know, a lot of Afghans are um, heavily influenced uh by uh persians um on the west side and you know um uh, um pakistan is on the east side sure and that was his thing i mean he and i you know i'm not they, gonna say i don't know a seal team that would have that in their you know in their right agenda coming up but i for sure even as an intelligence agent was not ready for it yeah and i thought i was the best so it's it just it really humbled me and it gave me respect towards these people who took every mission as their only mission. And, right. and that's also something that's just, it's so, it's so impressive to watch. Cause like, you know, I just want to like give them this credit. It's just like, those are the guys that are humble, perhaps not all of them, but you know, even the ones that are super humble and super quiet, and like, or joke with you, or even will cuss here and there. Once they turn on, man, it's like you have those like Belgian melanoirs. It's just like you see they're in the element, and it just, I mean, it, it's like the the most beautiful synchronization of, of characters that just there to do one job that they like all think alike. And it's been, it was very impressive to watch them as somebody who's been in a teams, you know, water polo as a team or any teams, even like being a part of them gives you this confidence of like, yeah, man, we can do this. Yeah. No, that, that is pretty cool. It's amazing what, you know, a platoon or a squad can do, right. Uh, of like-minded and well-trained, motivated individuals, like they can take on the world. It is absolutely phenomenal what a small group of guys is capable of. Well, hi guys. Um, welcome to Chrissy's Crash Course on Barberry Sheep, otherwise known as the Odd Ad. Okay, so to start off, I have always been fascinated with this particular species ever since my first time hunting one with my dad up in Texas. And let me tell you, they are not the easiest animal to stock down, okay? Particularly because of how well they can camouflage into their surrounding environment, such as desert-like areas with rocky mountains and jagged cliffs, as well as the fact that they have a keen sense of smell so they can detect your scent before you were within range. So you guys, they don't even give you a chance. Also, their hearing is immaculate. So lots are betting against you when hunting these creatures. So I wouldn't even attempt to bring my bow at this point. I would bring my rifle instead. <laughs> Unless you like a challenge, then go for it. You know, no one's stopping you. But anyway, what's something that stood out to me about the odd ad when I was researching about them is how they can move around the way that they do on such steep and sharp rocky cliffs with little to no edges. I mean, Oddad are able to balance their own body weight, which can range from 175 to 320 pounds as adults. 
I even did some research of my own on how this is even remotely possible and come to find out it's all in the way their hooves were created, which allows them to maneuver a certain way. The hooves on an odd ad are pointed and upright that help to balance themselves on abnormally weird little nooks and crannies on side of cliffs. But oddly enough, this is almost like an advantage for them initially because where they are able to support themselves on these sketchy high up cliff edges, other animals don't even dare follow or step foot. It deters them away. Arad are uniquely equipped for this type of environment because of their origins and their native habitats in northern Africa, Morocco, the western Sahara, Sudan, and Egypt. Although their own native habitats are being commonly threatened more so there than here in the U.S., because you have poaching, habitat loss, and destruction, as well as overgrazed lands due to the domestic livestock over there. Those are the Barbary sheep's main threats outside of the U.S., though. So you're probably sitting there wondering, well, how did the species of sheep from northern Africa show up in the northern United States, right? Well, before I answer your question, you guys should probably know that even though they are called Barbary sheep, they aren't really sheep. They are not from the sheep family. They are from both the goat and the sheep ancestors, but somehow make up their own category. Therefore, they are their own species of animal. Crazy, right? Like, what? The word Barbary also stems from where they are native to, which is in North Africa along the Barbary coast. Now, to answer your question on how they got here in the first place, this all started during the 1900s when Barbary sheep were first recognized to be included into zoos. What happened was a couple of ex-GIs who had earlier served in North Africa during the time of World War II had come to a conclusion that maybe these creatures would make for a possible game animal to hunt here in the United States. It's something different and new, you know? So later after 1950 was when they introduced the Odad to Texas and New Mexico, and they have been thriving in this new terrain. You can since then now find them in West Texas, California, and New Mexico running wild and free range or just on ranches. Since bringing them from Africa to America, they have developed and adapted to their new habitat incredibly. They can withstand both extremely hot and cold temperatures and jump up to two meters high when climbing on the sides of cliffs. Like how? In other words, these animals are pretty strong. You'll find them grazing around on the sides of mountains with a few others in a group, eating all sorts of plants, grasses, flowers, leaves, and shrubs, which they also get their water intake from since in desert areas, as we know, Water isn't fairly common everywhere. A fun fact about the Barbary sheep is that they can go about five days without a drink. Like, how? This is crazy. The species travels in almost like a small family-type group. They tend to wander at night and can travel relatively far in just one night. In the daytime, though, you may find them grazing alongside mountains and or on the outer edges of cliffs. During the hottest parts of the days, they will be under trees in the shade or underneath overhanging rocks and sometimes even in caves to get out of the heat of the sun. With all this being said, Ada being another species to live in the United States comes with its own new threats, such as hunting and possible risk of loss of agriculture. This can happen since they aren't originally from here. The lifespan for these animals, though, can differ on either being in captivity and being being taken care of or being on their own but in the wild with multiple different contributors to threats and illnesses. Otta that live in containment or captivity can live up to 20 years and Otta that are wild and on their own could only live up to 10 years. Another fact you should know about Barbary sheep is their mating season and exactly what that entails. It's from September to November where they're at their peak breeding point and each female will give birth to one or two lambs in between the months of March through May. 
Rarely, some females may have twins or up to three lambs rather than just one or two. At the age of 18 months old, they have made it to sexual maturity and can then on go on their own, already adapted to the environment since having to learn and keep it up at such an early age. But can we take a minute, though, to just admire how rare and interesting the odd ad are? I mean, what's so fascinating is how males aren't the only ones to have horns. Like, females have them, too. In order to tell them apart, though, is based off of their horns, is to notice how the males have usually thicker, longer, more rigid horns, while the females have more of a slim look to them. The females are also more mean and aggressive than the males, right? Like, how ironic is that? Though the species aren't considered to be aggressive creatures, they seem to cohabitate with other hooved animals that they cross paths with just fine and come across as actually very social animals towards others. I mean, sure, their eyes are far apart and they look like a big goat, but the way that they have evolved and were able to adapt to the environments in the U.S. and to now be thriving here and spread throughout is just simply amazing. I know I may sound biased since I have a love for hunting Barbary sheep, But if you ever get an opportunity to do so, I would just say, take it. Like, just take that opportunity. You'll see after. You'll see what that feels like. It feels amazing. I still think about that hunt and those times I spent with my dad, though, spotting and stalking one. I sit there and I reminisce on how I felt when I was about to take my shot. Like, I remember the adrenaline and how nervous I was because I literally did not want to mess up on my one chance at a good one. And how it felt after making that climb up this steep mountain slope to see my animal like it it feels so good and to be up close and personal it's you're you're in awe of it my dad instilled at me at a very young age though to always have gratitude for an animal and to no matter what treat every animal with respect if it being dead or alive so we use every part of it as we can so that killing it doesn't go to waste and it goes towards feeding my family which honestly that's another feeling like I wish every child and person that has not been able to hunt or hasn't hunted before could feel because it feels it feels really good that you're able to provide for your family and so whether you are interested in hunting Audad or just simply admiring such a unique creature from afar now you'll have the information you need and some interesting facts to go along so thank you for listening to my little crash course about Barbary sheep and yeah bye guys Okay, let's get back to Afghanistan a little bit. Our our exfil from Afghanistan when we left as a country, uh, you know, that's been highly highly criticized. Uh, probably hasn't been scrutinized well enough. But to to provide a little bit of context around it, I left in 2013, and I would I would watch on Google Earth all the places that I had previously been. And I would watch them slowly get taken back over by Taliban. And I could see, you know, the vehicles change. I could see the structures change. Um, Even in some cases, see that like the walls beginning to erode and the deserts taking it back over again. And it was hard for me to look at that and think this has been for for nothing or for very little. I I think if, if nothing else, I went to a place where where militant people hated Americans. And I said, I'm here. If you want to fight, if you want to come after an American, you don't have to come to America to do it. I'm here for you right right now. Right. I, I do believe that there's value in that, but it's hard to see everything that you fight for. Just go away. We fast forward a couple of years and then it happens to the entire country. We're leaving Afghanistan, moving a ton of people all at once. And 
there's always going to be chaos involved with that. But were you in Kabul at the time? Um, not at the time of um, Exville, no. Okay. Um, but that Exville has, um, um, it, it is one of, it is one of the, the, the things that I have the hardest time stomaching um, for many reasons. And um, um, not just political or, or even operational. It's just, uh, as I mentioned before, um, Kabul airport is um, right next to a the, the tallest tower uh, of Kabul. And it's called a, um, it's uh, Azizi Tower. And it's right next to the airport. I mean, it's, you cannot miss it. You know, everybody who's ever landed in Kabul has seen Azizi Tower. And uh, <clears throat> Azizi Tower is a place where if you're an expat, if you're anybody that's not Afghan and anybody that's valuable to their country for whatever reason, that's where you would stay, eat, meet, whatever. Um, it's kind of like a off base. It's like a, a speakeasy base for every everything else that's not military. And the the more important you are to your country or to your cause, or you know, the the, the higher the floor you you stay. And again, within that, the more important you are, the further away from the airport you're 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 placed, because the noise of jets is just. I mean, you are right on the, you are closer to the air, to the uh, runway than the tower is. And I faced that gate, man, for three years. Like, I mean, I, I was pretty low and I, I watched that gate and passed through that gate for more than a thousand days, man. And, um, All of the 13 people who, um, there was 11 Marines, a sailor, a corpsman, and a, um, I believe an army personnel who died that day were there for three days. Three days, man. I was there for a, a thousand days doing active, busy war as a deep undercover asset, essentially being hunted at all times. Cause you know, if, if Taliban ever understood who I was, there, there was no coming back. And those kids been the third day. I mean, if you're ever traveling anywhere, if you travel from San Francisco to New York, the first three days, you don't know where the fuck you are. Right. Well, long, if you travel from United States, Germany, to Afghanistan, you know, to, I mean, there is no way that they knew their body knew where they were when they were there. It just, it, it, I mean, the smell, the, the, the oxygen, the, the altitude, everything that's there, it's, three days is not enough for you to compute where you are. It's just not, if you've never been there before. And to, I mean, when I realized they were just there for three days, man, and I was there for, you know, a thousand, three years, man, more than a thousand days. Yeah. I I just didn't know how to handle it, man. I mean, it's, it's just something that, I mean, you know, death, when we sign up for these duties or these platforms, it's, it, 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 it's a possibility. And you always think it's not going to happen to me or anybody that I know. 
but you know that it could happen. But then when you, I mean, when you just put it in, 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 in a, on a paper and you realize three days, man, that's 72 hours. Today's Friday. By Sunday, think about like how much you, you, you can't even get your house chores done by now. If you really wanted to listen to what your wife wants you to do by Sunday, it will not be done. Like right. how much there is to be done. And, you know, when I, I, I vividly remember stepping off the plane, uh, into Afghanistan and it felt to me like I had just walked onto a, a planet from star Wars. Like it was so hot. It was so bright. The air felt thick. There was, there was this incredibly fine dust that was just all throughout the atmosphere. There's so much dust that you can barely see a star at night in Helmand, right? It, it's, it's incredible just how thick and and crippling that air is and it takes your breath away it was you know over 120 degrees and nothing is a color that i've ever seen before it's just incredible and that shock that culture shock uh and and the terrain and everything else and then combine that with with jet lag and stress like you don't have the chance to be operationally effective and to be on your game that quickly you know for for me I felt like it took it took three or four months before I was any good at being there, and really I wasn't that good at it until six or seven months when it was time for me to leave. So three days is really setting those troops up for failure. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, it, sometimes I take pictures on, on Instagram, and there is that one filter that kind of makes everything orange. Mm -hmm. Dude, that's Afghanistan. When you get off that plane and. All of a sudden, you are in a different filter, man. I mean, everything looks orange. Like I mean, that yeah. dust, that 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 thing is just like that brown. It's like it's it's. I mean, you put it perfectly. It it feels like you are on a different planet. You know, it just. I mean, even the cars that you see kind of move differently. The, the first three four days, you just like are not. <laughs> you're not. I mean, it, it's not real. Yeah, totally. Uh, so an absolute tragedy that, that those troops died could have been a lot worse, could have been a lot worse, but I don't want to take away from, from how bad that is because that's just, that's just the charismatic portion of it is that we lost 13 of our own there. There were so many Afghans that were killed, so many of whom had, had worked for the U S who'd worked for allies and, you know, them and their families, like a lot of them didn't make it, um, and I wouldn't even dare put a number on it. But it would it would horrify you. It would it would be more than, the, I mean, that number is more than all of the people that you know. Oh, so imagine sure. everyone that you know getting killed horribly, and that's probably not even scratching the surface of what actually happened in Kabul and the rest of Afghanistan when the Taliban took over and we left. And you know this is public knowledge but it's just i don't think people understand what truly happened when we left everything there um i think it was august 28 or 29 i was still in that shock what's going on because it, it didn't make sense and i got a phone call from a friend of mine who at when i was active was um on the opera on an admin side and we were just remained friends and, um, you know, different agencies, but good contact. 
And um, he just said, hey, man, I know where you are, but uh, listen, uh, wherever you are, you're compromised. I'm like, um, no, man, I, I'm, I'm out. You know, I, I, I'm married. I'm not, I'm, I'm compromised because, you know, I'm married now, but it's, uh, why? And he just said, well, we left all of the biometrics of all you guys behind, and they have it now. And every single one of you that operated there is, it's covert no more. So every deep undercover person that we had, we left the biometrics, which means your fingerprints, your retinal scans, your face, your teeth, all that stuff, all those ways that it's so easy to identify you. Yeah. Holy shit. And, you know, the way that that works is just, it's like a large, it it looks like a credit card machine. I mean, the biometric data was at the the, um, airport or the base and anywhere else. But every single one of those gadgets that looks like a credit card scanner when you take took a picture of someone or take their um if they had an id or if if you took their um fingerprint will show on the screen if the guy is friendly not friendly known friendly known help and or adverse so at that point of time taliban literally had a full list of people who were friendly to Americans with all of their information, man. I mean, everything to the point that, you know, we all have, and this is the truth, we all have like a safety question of, you know, if you get captured and when, you, when they are saving you, if you don't look the way that you do, like, what is your question? You can make up whatever the fuck you want. And, I mean, down to that question, everybody was out. Now, people might say, well, who fucking cares? It's Afghanistan. It's Taliban. Well, Taliban has an um, embassy in China right now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it's 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 more than fair to assume that whoever was an undercover asset and or any kind of asset, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it could it doesn't have to be undercover. It's just they, they could have all of their information. Forever. I mean, I, what am I going to do now? You know, change everything. So, look, I mean, we've got thousands of people crossing the southern border daily right now. We know that a, a good number of them are from the Middle East or from Afghanistan. Are you worried? Are you worried that somebody's going to show up at your door or, you know, find you and, and seek reprisal? Um, no. Uh, I'll put it this way, man. I, 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 um, I never look over my shoulder. I, 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 I have faith and I've done everything I could at the time that I did it in, in, with good intentions. I never went to hunt anybody or hurt anyone or, or, or face anyone who I was not sure was out there to hurt my people you, your family, any American, um, race, gender, didn't matter to me. You, if you were an American in Afghanistan, for whatever reason, you could have been kidnapped by cartel and, and trafficked in the middle of Kabul and then be you know, somewhere in any province, and I got a call, there's an American, and you could have been LGBT, black, uh, lives matter president for that matter. 
I will gladly die to save you because you are an American and we are what we are. Like we stand together. So when I was there, my my main job, my my mission was nobody harms my people, nobody. And here at home, I I I live a peaceful life knowing. I mean, if somebody comes to my door, man, you know, come and get it, man. I'm I'm Spartan, right? More than love, it's just like you want my weapons, man. More more than happy to share. Come and get it. But uh, I am worried in a different spectrum because. I know how difficult it was to get in certain countries untraced, you know, to, to appear in a country. And in the most advanced country, that's not the case. I mean, you can just walk over. I mean, you know, when I went to certain countries and cities, it, it, it was, you know, planning months in advance of how am I going to get in there and then, you know, resume life. That's not the case for us here. I mean, that one of the biggest obstacles that any adversary has, it's not present entering to our country. That's that's the problem. I, I, I that's the, the 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 fear that I have. You know, it's not what they can do because once they're here, it's fair game. But it's just like there is, it's so easy to come here. I mean, it's, it's harder to get into fucking Afghanistan from United States than from Afghanistan to here. That's the that's that's mind boggling. Right. You know, we have the most advanced technology of surveillance in the world, yet it's a lot easier for Taliban to, to go to, you know, Mexico and walk over than for me to go to, to Afghanistan to save any of those guys that were there. It's just, it's, it's crazy when you think yeah. of when you, when you put it in that perspective, right? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, so this, this, this loss of these troops affected you extremely personally. You did something very special to commemorate that uh tell me about your 13 mile swim um i normally swim every day for um for 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 an hour which sometimes ends up to be two hours in between it's in between two and three miles and the sunday so last year the 25th was on a friday and Sunday or Friday or Friday, I was just swimming and I had this urge, man. I, I was just like, I, I need to honor them. I, I need to do it. It's not for anybody else. I need to get in space to be with them. And um, uh, I just didn't, didn't think really much. I just said, I'm going to swim 30 miles. And um, I called our mutual friend, uh, Ben. Ben Winner, and I just said, "Hey man, listen, I'm gonna swim this Friday. Uh, it's gonna take me like seven and a half hours for this um, event." Not knowing what his schedule is, and I think at the time, reason why I called him was we were gonna sell our patches. He's uh, he has a company, Tier One, or make T-shirts, and I was just I didn't have enough time. To kind of make it happen or 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 to i don't have a website i still don't have a website just like can we host over tier one or whom whom who should i call um ended up to be through a very very close friend of mine um blake cook who uh works with blueberrying and kyle morgan kyle morgan is the delta from uh molly attack and um, they helped me with the T-shirts within four days, man. I mean, we had T-shirts ready for everybody. But Ben, 
who is a commercial pilot for um, you know mainstream a, um, airliners, moved around his schedule, flew in to where I live at night, uh, drove with me to the close by lake, watched me swim for seven and a half hours, fed me as I stopped. Got back in his uniform. <laughs> we we drove him back to the airport, and he, you know, welcome aboard, you know, flight seven four four seven, and took everybody away. So that's how you and I met for everybody else. But uh, that swim was probably one of the hardest swims mentally, and um, I can go into a little bit in detail how that wrong how wrong everything went during that swim. Um, you know, I had three days to prepare. I didn't have a permit. Um, I couldn't find a buoy that goes behind me because you need to have a buoy as you go in open water. So I went to a scuba shop and they gave me a diver below um, floaty yeah. <laughs> that's supposed to stay stationary. So as I'm dragging it, it's actually trying to stop me. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I had comms in my ear. Um, I have a a, a, get, um, a, a little bluetooth that had a um walkie-talkie with ben if i needed anything and he will check up on me and also music because it's seven and a half hours within four strokes that thing died on me man it just it just it just stopped i had this goggles that are that show me direction of where i'm going and kind of distance that i'm going and and my uh, kind of pace and they had a yellow they have a yellow screen in my uh in my in my right eye but you know i was swimming uh quarter my laps and there was a yellow boat on the other side of where i was swimming and i kept zigzagging man i kept zigzagging because I didn't know which way to orient because it's just like it's you know if anybody swims you don't have that much time to look up you kind of kind of look for something first and kind of aim for it and it, it, I mean everything went dark I had no comms uh, it's lake so the, the the visibility was two feet and I I had no music no visibility. I, I was dragging this thing that later on we found out was like around 70 pounds of pullback that I had the whole time. And I don't know how, like mile five, um, right before I swam, I let Hunter um, Diaz is uh, one, of the, one of the Marines. And I, I, I got in contact with his mom. And she told me how Hunter, before he went, he liked swimming. He really enjoyed swimming. And I'm not gonna. I'm not here to tell you like how you know it was euphoric. But as I went back with those strokes, every stroke, man, every stroke I took, I pictured, you know, the elevator down from Azizi Square. I, I, I just, I, I, I lived for seven and a half hours in Afghanistan. I was there with them, and I mean, I just like, I just went back, and I just like, and at one point of time, I remember. Vividly, I remember explaining this strokes to Hunter, just like, you know, like, you know, this is tactical swimming. This is technical swimming. This is why you go slower. But it's just like I went into this euphoric stage where I just like connected with being there. And I just, in a way, I don't, it's, it's hard to explain. And I, I'm sure I, I don't want to sound like a 
you know, beating a dead horse here, but it felt like if I can finish this 13 miles, I can rewrite the history and they'll be alive. That's how I swam. Like it, it was just like it wasn't this. It was not fast. It was not impressive to at all. It was. It was just. I, in my head, like in my mind, felt like if I can do this, if you know, like if I can do this, there'll be less pain. Like their families will have less pain, which is not the truth. I mean, or I mean, they're not coming back. But I connected with that. Um, that loss and and i really when i stopped when i got out i, I probably cried for half an hour i didn't I, I didn't know how to stop like my 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 family was looking at me and i was just i couldn't stop crying it, it, it was one of those things i wasn't tired i mean i was tired but i wasn't tired there were i i completely kind of needed to, to cry because my body gave up it was just my soul was so aching that i i, I just cried man i mean like i didn't know how to stop and i look for you know what man i mean i know you and i have talked about this before but i would like to invite you to choose a place for 2024 anywhere you want uh open water and i'll swim 13 miles and um i would like to start planning it somehow better this year that we can do some um, charity work for um, Hunter Lopez uh, Foundation ran by his mom, which is, um, she's kind of like a spokesperson for those 13 families that are lost. I mean, they're all, she's the one that's, they're all active, but she's the one that's kind of managing it. And all proceeds go to them straight. I mean, we can just tag team and um, I'll be more than happy to have you i mean i'll be honored to have you by my side you don't have to swim but it's just like as a marine i'm sure it, it it will touch um close to home with you and and whomever you know you wish to invite well look i'm not i'm not a great swimmer um i'm i'm an effective swimmer i guess for the purposes that i've that i've used it which you know is mostly like swift water rescue and whitewater and trying to get back in my boat and then spearfishing and uh swimming 13 miles is pretty intimidating i've never swam that far in my life at officer candidate school and uh, in, in uh no it was at the basic school in quantico um i had to get to the i think it was the third the third of of four levels uh for swim qualification pilots uh had to get that fourth level but uh, I I failed that test twenty three times in a row. I drowned twice. had had to get water pumped out of my lungs twice. And folks, I don't know if you've ever failed something that many times in a row, but it starts to get at you. But if I didn't pass that, it it was disqualifying. I was not going to be able to continue. So I I swam at night. I swam on weekends. I went out of state. Uh, I got swim lessons. I went to colleges and got swim lessons. I worked at it extremely hard. And, you know, on, on my last chance, I did pass it. Wait, and, you, uh, 24 is the limit? At that point, I will say, you know what, man, you're good. Man. I mean, here, take as many as you want. Yeah. Now, well, it was the end of the course. It was a six-month-long course. And uh, that's that's how many times I failed. I failed every single week. Um, so 
Anyways, eventually I, I did pass um, on, on my, I think it was my 23rd attempt that I passed. I, I could be off on a number too, but it was pretty close to that. All that said, I'm in. So August 26th this year, I've got the lake. I've got the support boat. We're going to do it. I'm going to get in the water um, and I'm, I'm going to get those miles in. I'm probably going to wear a wetsuit and fins and a mask and a snorkel. And uh, I might have to stop and, and sit on my boat and eat a bologna sandwich from time to time, but I'm in. Let's do it. A hundred percent. And we're going we're gonna to make this into something. So uh, that that much is done. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to get tier one kinetics involved. I want to talk about that a little bit because Ben did make this introduction, uh, which I'm very grateful for. And put a lot of value in. So Ben Winter started this company called Tier One Kinetics. And you can find that on the internet. Um, what that is, is a place for you to buy tactical and hunting equipment. And a bunch of other stuff. And everything that he sells has been vetted by a combat operator. So not just a veteran. Uh, not just somebody who was in the military. But by somebody who who was an actual operator or by somebody who's a professional hunter. So everything in there has been vetted as a good piece of gear certifiably. Um, very special. And uh, yeah, and Ben's a tremendous guy. So if you need stuff, buy it there. And that's who, who we're going to be uh, doing this, uh, doing this swim with as well. Um, I'm both excited and terrified at the prospect of it. I'm going to build up to it and we're going to get this done. And, uh, I'll probably be crying for at least half an hour at the end of this as well. Uh, I'm all about hugs, man. I, I train with Swix. So it's all about that touchy feely stuff, man. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> well, between that and being Greek, I think, uh, hugging is just oh, part of who man. you are. <laughs> yes. Opa, all the way, man. Yeah. Well, um, I, I want to end, end this with a question. You've seen a lot of the best and more than, more than your fair share of the worst of what humanity has to offer, both inside the United States and outside. You could live wherever you wanted, wherever you want. You choose to live here. What is something that is special and valuable to you about living in America? That's very personal to me, and I, 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 you know, I um, I tell everybody I'm and I'm an American through and through, and I do not apologize for any of it. And um, this is the only country um, in the world. Um, and to give context of how I know this is uh, during my career of seven years, I went through five passport books every passport has 24 pages each page back and forth can hold up to seven 14 stamps so you do the math of how much traveling in countries i've been to get five passport books there is no country on this planet now or before or ever that you can come with nothing nothing absolutely nothing and you can enjoy success in your lifetime it just doesn't exist you know you can go to france to germany to all those places and if you come from nothing if you're lucky 
your you know third generation after you might be a decent citizen. Uh, this is the only place where you can practice everything you want, everything you want. I mean, you can even say that this country sucks as you come here and you'll still be allowed to say it. That doesn't exist in 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 ninety nine percent of the population. We have a uh, we have a we have constitution, and and it's um it's my most favorite document because I don't read we the people as a limiting contract. When I read it, the way that I read it, the way that I I take it, I mean, it's tattooed on my body, is. It's a platform for success. It's it's a blueprint of what you can do to live the way you want, if you choose to. I mean, you know, every other country, every other country, their laws are putting you in, kind of boxing you in to be able to do what you want. Here, we're not boxing it. Constitution does not box you in. It allows you to do anything, man. I mean, you know, pursuit of happiness exists. It's the only place. I get I get really emotional, man, because it's just I've seen I've seen so much of people around the world dying. Willing to die, willing to kill for so their ki their kids can be here. Willing to die just to have a chance to live here, and I've also seen so many people here who don't value it at all, who choose not to value it. It's not because it's not valuable. It's not because it doesn't carry any value. They just choose to ignore the value of it. It's just they're assigning values to different um, platforms that don't exist. It's just it's 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 not even crypto money, crypto value. It's like monopoly value it doesn't exist. You, the freedom that you think as an American that you don't have, nobody else has anywhere else. I mean, it doesn't exist. You know, and you know, I can put this in many ways. You know, if you want to have the life that you have here as a mediocre income family. In most of the world, you are top 1% of that population with the education that you don't have here, with the sacrifices of families that your families have not done. I mean, third, fourth, fifth generation college professors, surgeons in many countries do not have the life and the luxuries that we have here. And... My joy when I came back, I, I remember um, I'm not a big um, like super music fan. I like stuff, but I just remember when I first came back, Justin Bieber, sorry, and that music was on, and I was just <laughs> like, "This is fucking it, man." I mean, this is it. You know, I mean, imagine, man. I mean, you can listen to whatever the fuck you want anywhere. Right. And I'm not, you know, I understand people are gonna say, well, that's Afghanistan. How about different countries? I guarantee you, from starting from zero, if you leave everything that you have here without any transfer of income or money, there is no other country you will make it to the point where you are now leaving and that you enjoy it within your life 
So it's a lifetime. So it's just, it's a, it's, it's not just privilege to live here, man. It's just such luck. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I, I completely agree. And I often hear this perspective either from people who have spent a lot of time elsewhere or from people who have immigrated here. They're like, this is, this is the greatest opportunity in the world. And it is a special thing. And it's good to have that reminder. Luke, I am extremely grateful for your service and for, for your sacrifice and dedication, not only to our country, but just for the good of people everywhere. And, you know, you've given, you've given more than can be understood. You've given more than anybody could ever ask. And having spent seven years undercover in war zones, dude, I cannot even imagine the, the toll that that has taken on you. And I'm so glad to see you, you know, living well with your family back here in the States. And, and it, it's truly, it's truly a privilege just to get to talk with you. And, uh, when we take on this, what is to me a gargantuan challenge of, uh, of putting on these water miles, uh, in honor of those troops who were killed in Afghanistan. Um, I'm looking forward to that as well. Thank you for having me, man. It's, 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 I, I, I'm lost for words. I truly am. What can people do to support you? Enjoy your every motherfucking day as an American man, you know, have that latte or don't have that fucking latte, man. It's just like, remember that you are living the dream that most people will kill for. Amen. Thank you all very much for listening. I'm going to keep bringing you these stories from normal people just like you who have done extraordinary things. Everyone is an expert at something and they have interesting perspectives on life and work and the environment and all the things that we care about. I'm going to keep bringing that to you. And I want to thank you so much for making this show possible. I also want to thank Emily Bratcher for producing this show. She does a great job editing. Really appreciate her. I want to thank John Chatelain. He did the art for the Six Ranch podcast. And Celia, soon to be Harlander, uh, she digitized that so that we can get it out there on the internet for you. Also want to thank Justin Hay for writing this original music and the beautiful whistling that you're listening to right now. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Please keep listening to the show. Write me a review if you feel like it. And just keep doing your thing. And we'll all learn from this together. It's been fun. And, you know, we're, we're just getting started. <laughs>